This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of Twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, welcome to episode 244 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. Tracy, it's a, a nice beautiful day. day in the neighborhood. Yeah, it's springtime, definitely. Oh my gosh, today in Kentucky, it was perfect. The wind wasn't blowing, the trees are budding, it was just uh, a little house on the prairie day. Yeah. And I'm sure awesome. it'll be 30 degrees and snowing tomorrow. That's well, you know I have a t-shirt that says yes. that, so. First of all, we want to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country we represent. Thank you for all that you do for us. Yes, God bless you guys. We love you all so much. And, you know, just keep on doing what you're doing because we appreciate you all so much. You'll just never know. You're the, re- yeah. the guys are the reason that we can live life Absolutely. every day without worrying about, you know, being attacked from terrorist countries and stuff like that. And, and knowing that if we was to fall down and hit our head, that you guys will come take care of us. And yep. it's just you it's, guys got us. Yeah. You got our backs for sure. Also, we want to make sure that we let everybody know that if you're struggling uh, mentally, depression wise, or bipolar or something like that, that we're here for you. I know you might not always hear that, hey, somebody is there for you, but we want to make sure that you are aware that not only are we there for you, there's 5,000 people in our group that are there for you. And we don't mention, we, I know we mention the group a lot, but we don't really talk so much about what it takes uh, to be a part of it. If you're listening to this podcast and you feel like that you could use a little extra support, Go to Hillbilly Horror Stories group on Facebook. It's going to ask you a couple of very simple questions. Answer the questions. We don't let anybody in without answering the questions. And here is why. This is a private group and people tell us very private things in the group. Now, that's fine if you're part of the group and you know that they're going to hear it. But we want people to realize before they join the group that they're going to hear some private moments of people. And that's kept between us. Mm-hmm. And so when we say, hey, you're going to hear some private stuff, are you good with this? And if you don't answer that question, I can't take the uh, chance and neither can any of our moderators of letting somebody in that could, you know, post bad comments. If somebody says, hey, I'm struggling and and somebody who didn't agree to the rules and we let them in and they start, you know, quit whining or quit being a crybaby or suck it up. That's not what the group's about. That's right. Because I'll punch you in the face. And, yeah. So we're and we're not going to allow that, and that's an automatic ban for anybody who does something like that. And it took us a while to weed that out, and we've just decided the only way we can make this the way it needs to be and be as supportive and inclusive as possible is to be very strict on who we let in. So we'll let you in, but you got to be able to answer the questions and know that you're going to see a lot of personal stuff, and you got to be okay with that. You're not going to. It's not all going to be horror story stuff. All right. It's just not. 
you know. But they're still fun. There's a lot of funny memes. And, oh, heck yeah. And people post about the stories. It's yeah, still a lot of fun. Yeah, we love it. Love it. And we love you guys. So, but if you need to reach out to um, the suicide hotline number, it's 1-800-273-8255 or 741-741 if you want to text. We got you guys. We're here for you. We love you. And please reach out. Tracy, as usual, this episode is brought to you by El Yucateco Hot Sauce. It is the number one habanero-based hot sauce in the United States. Top 10 out of all habanero hot sauces. And you can get yours at most major grocers or you can get it at elyucateco.com. And if you want 10% off, put in the code HILLBILLYHORROR. Yeah, do it. All right. After we get finished with this, we have an interview. And this is a really cool interview. There was a book that came out called Maniac uh, recently, and Harold Schechter wrote the book. And this is about the Bath School disaster that was back in the 1920s in uh, Michigan. And it was the biggest mass uh, murder at a school, I think even still today, even oh. with all the school shootings. Oh, wow. How horrible. And, and the how this happened was... When we did the story about the Cokesville miracle mm-hmm. and, you know, how the the guy came in there, the fam- my, uh, husband and wife came in with the bomb and then, you know, only the persons that got hurt was him and his wife and everybody else survived. Well, this is kind of the exact opposite, unfortunately. But Aww. the publisher heard us do that story and said, hey, I think you might want to talk to this guy and the book's getting ready to come out. So we, we interviewed him. He's going to talk all about... Uh, this disaster, it's horrible. Uh, but stay tuned for that. It's a really good interview. Okay. All right. I feel like that we really haven't done enough stories in the state of Virginia, considering how close it is to us. Mm-hmm. So I was doing the Patreon bonus the other day on West Virginia Bigfoot sightings. And it dawned on me how many stories that we've done in West Virginia and how few we've done in the state of Virginia. Oh, well, we can't leave them out. No, and it's it's possible. I didn't I didn't dig through, but just going off the top of my head, it's possible that the Colonial Williamsburg episode may be the only one that was actually in Virginia that we've done. Oh, no way. Yeah, huh. I think so. But that changes the day because we're going to talk about the Martha Washington Inn. And it's in Virginia. You go, Martha. <laughs> so let's jump right into the history because this place has a lot of history. So the inn was originally built in 1832 by General Francis Preston as his residence. This is in Abington, Virginia. And I'd never heard of Abington until this story. Mm-hmm. It's in Abington, Virginia. As far as General Francis Preston, he was a war hero. He was from the from the War of 1812. And he wanted a really nice house for his wife and his nine kids. He was up in age by this time. Mm-hmm. General Preston was the son of Colonel William Preston, so the military was in their blood, without a doubt. Francis Preston enrolled in college at William and Mary. He earned a law degree, and then after graduation, he returned to Abington and started his law practice. He served for a while as congressman for Virginia in 1793 to 1797. Now, if you're looking, if you actually went to the end now, it's a beautiful building, a big building. The oldest... Uh, building of the inn is the one right in the middle, and that's the part that was actually his residence. Everything else was kind of built on Mm -hmm. after that. Now, Preston was one of the first slaveholders in Washington County to emancipate a slave. Uh, 
On September 20, 1795, Preston deeded John Brody, a former slave, to General William Campbell his freedom. Good. Brody claimed that General Campbell had promised him his freedom. So you're probably wondering, well, how did he free someone else's slave? Oh, yeah. What happened was General Preston married General Campbell's daughter. Uh, His daughter was Sarah Buchanan Campbell. And Brody was actually given to the to them along with his wife as like a dowry, a wedding settlement. Oh, so he gave him he gave him some land and he gave him some money uh-huh. and he gave them a slave. Uh-huh. And in the deed that he made out to Brody, Preston wrote that he felt the desire to emancipate the said Negro man John as well for the fulfillment of the above-mentioned promise, as well as the gratification of being instrumental of prompting a participation of liberty to a fellow creature who by nature is entitled thereto. So, basically, he just felt like that somebody shouldn't own somebody else. Amen, brother. And That's like awesome. That was the right thing to do. So he was it given, is the right thing to do. He was given the slave, and he in turn just turned around and set him free. Aw, Yay! So like we said earlier, he went on to fight in the War of 1812. At that time, that Preston, uh, at the time that the Preston House was built, he was much older and a member of the Washington County Court. I told you he was the little, little older. older yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So the home took two years to build, and it was the most expensive house in the area. Originally, it was a two floors, and it was built in a Federalist style, and it was built over an English basement. And I have no idea what an English basement is. Oh, I don't know is. that. Well, I didn't know there was such a thing. So there's a third floor now, but that was built in 1905. I say it's better than a regular basement. Yes, or maybe it's just a, a uh, basement that has an accent. Oh, it could be. <laughs> That'd be cool. Please, sir, no tornadoes. <laughs> Unfortunately... <laughs> Preston only got to enjoy the house for a short time because he died two years after its completion. Oh, man. And he was at his brother's house in South Carolina when he passed. Oh. In 1858, the Preston family sold the house and the property to the Holston Conference of the United Methodist Church. Two years later, the Martha Washington College was opened on the property using that building. Very cool. The college was for young ladies, and it operated until 1919. It was then consolidated with nearby Emory and Henry College. The school was able to stay open through the Civil War, but it could not survive the Great Depression, and it closed in the 1920s. Oh, man. It's terrible. The building was now vacant, and it cost a lot to maintain. It was used for a short time to house actors from the Barter Theater that sits right across the street from it. In 1937, it became a hotel, and it has been a hotel ever since. So I want to point out uh, that I said it survived the Civil War, and it did. But part of that time, the building was used as a Civil War hospital and barracks. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was still, and it, and it was still a college mm-hmm. during the time that this was going on. Oh, no so way. it was doing no both oh, wow. at the same time. It actually served as a training ground for the the Washington Mounted Rifles, which was a Confederate unit. So there's a lot going on there no during doubt. the Civil War. At least they utilize it good. Yeah. 
The architecture of the building has been uh, preserved for over 150 years. And the original living room of uh, uh, Colonel Preston is now the main lobby of the inn. So that main lobby, when you come in, was his living room. Oh. It was bought by the United Group in 1984, and it went through an $8 million renovation. In 1995, it was admitted to the Campbell Collection of Historic Places. Good, good. So I know some of you are like, um, okay, I'm ready. We'll get it. Has some history. Can we talk about ghosts or what? <laughs> well, interest. That was interesting. Yeah. But yes, yes, we yes we can talk about ghosts, and uh, you guys are about impatient. I'm just saying. Who are you talking to? I'm just telling you. It reminds me. Reminds me of a joke. Oh. I won't tell it, though. So oh. Why don't you just me. read the story already? Well, I guess we'll start off with room 403, then. Fine. That's, Dang. And, and that's where the hotel's most famous ghost is. But just so you know, I'm going to tease you and just tell you a little bit and then tell you the main later. So, that's what I do. It's my style. Mm-hmm. I have a, I have a setup that I do every time. Oh, my God. Will you read the story already? Guess, <laughs> guests who stay in room 403 at the Martha Washington Inn may get a little more than a place to sleep for the night. Room 403 is the room that is home to a ghost affectionately known as Beth. Beth? Yes, I hear her calling. She's been seen and heard by guests and visitors alike. On one occasion, a woman and her husband were staying in the room, and they had turned on the TV, laid down in the bed, and was going to get some rest, watch the little TV. Then the heavy brass bed that they were laying in. What did you say? The heavy brass bed. <laughs> I thought you said the heavy breast bed. Now, <clears throat> if you just allow me to finish. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> the heavy brass bed began shaking violently. Now, that really would have been bad if it was a heavy breast bed yeah. shaking violently. Things have been all over the place. <laughs> in your armpit. They thought it was an earthquake and they quickly ran out the door. Oh my gosh, I would have too. On another occasion, the night clerk heard someone running down the main staircase in the middle of the night. So without saying a word, the band got to the bottom of the staircase, got to the clerk's uh, desk area. He threw his room key on the desk, turned and ran out the door so quick that his bag got caught in the doorway. (laughs) (laughs) He finally got it loose and he ran off the porch and straight to his car. Oh my gosh, he was scared. Well, the, the clerk was extremely puzzled and he said that he must have heard or saw something because he was a regular guest at the end. He'd stayed there several times. But this was his first time ever staying in room 403. Mm, maybe it was a, not like a dining ditch, but a, <laughs> a sleeping ditch. A sleeping ditch. I think you probably charged him periodically. Probably before, yeah. Yeah, he might well, have that's so funny that he has spent there, uh, like, a lot of times there, and he just never had got that room. I guess not. But as you're going to find, it, there's a lot of hauntings going here, so it's, it's surprising that he hadn't seen something Something before, yeah. Somewhere else. No one knows exactly how many ghosts are at the Martha Washington Inn, but we definitely know there's a few of them. Because first of all, there's Beth. Then there's a Confederate soldier. There's a riderless horse. A slave that haunts the pub. And a former waiter. Wow. I mean, that building's been through a lot. Yes. So that sounds like plenty of restless spirits, even for a hotel this big. Now, those with personal experiences report apparitions and poltergeist activity, and a lot of it. So, why are these spirits at the hotel? Well, 
the land has over 230 years of dark history going back even before Preston built the house there. You you mean like land-wise or something? Oh, okay. In 1776, part of the property was covered in this dense um, chinquapin thicket. What is I know what a thicket is, but what is that? A um, chinquapin is like uh, chestnuts. Oh, so if you've ever dealt with chestnuts, they're like balls of nothing but thorns. Oh, yeah, good it's like Lord. you would not want to step. No, into one of these. no, and I they, know exactly they, what you're saying. Were, these were all over the place, but it's a type of chestnut tree, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But they were all over the place. Now between the thickets and and Black's Fort. That there was a, a patch of land there that the colonists would grow flax. Like flax seeds? Like, yeah, is that what you mean? flax seeds come from. I mean, flax? Yes. Oh, okay, okay. And, and if you've ever seen anybody do flax, think about this. Let's say that Flax you, seeds are supposed to be good for you, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they are good for you. Okay. And they, and they can use them for all kinds of stuff. It's a, it's really good to uh, clean your system out. It's a fiber. That That's what Alexis, she uses that. That's what she was telling me that what. She said, yeah. you need some flexi. So let's say, just so you have an example, let's say you were walking through a field and it was grass, because flax looks a lot like grass, tall grass. Oh. And let's say it was up to your waist. Mm-hmm. What people have to do, they literally grab handfuls of it and they pull it out of the ground. Mm-hmm. That's how they harvest this flax. At oh. least back then. I thought well, you were going to say some, they used it for toilet paper. Well, in some country they, they do now. But I'm just saying, just picture grass up to your waist, mm-hmm. just a field of nothing but grass, and you're just going through pulling all of it up by hand. Dang. That's how they had to do it. So one day, there was two men and three women. They ever they were, heard of a hoe? Well, there was two of them here, because there was two two men and three women, so there was three holes. <laughs> you are dumb. <laughs> One day, two men and three women were hard. Well, you couldn't do this with a hole anyway. Well, I guess not. Let's try this again. One day, two men and three women, they were hard at work pulling the flax up. Frederick Mongol was stationed at a lookout, so he was watching out for Native Americans. Because this was during the years when the Cherokees were raiding up and down the frontier in this area. Mm -hmm. And... There had already been massacres in southwest Virginia in which colonists were killed and women and children had been kidnapped. Mm. So he's up there just kind of keeping an eye out on the people that are working because they knew to expect it at, at, oh, least at okay. some point. Now, at the edge of this flax field was about a dozen Cherokee Native Americans crouched down in the bushes. <gasps> slowly inching their way towards the five harvesters. Oh, my goodness. Then the Native Americans let out a war chant, and they charged across the field. Frederick Mongol was wounded and scalped alive. (gasps) The rest of the group ran towards the fort, and they were ducking behind trees and stuff along the way to Mm -hmm. avoid the influx of arrows and blowgun darts that were being shot at them. How scary is that? The men at the fort heard the incoming screams and they ran out of the fort and chased the would-be attackers away. Mongo was then carried into the fort, but he died of his wounds. Is it possible that Mongo's spirit is one of the ghosts that haunt the inn? Maybe. Then you also have the Civil War. Most of the men from the county were off fighting during the Civil War for the Confederacy. So that left 
very few men actually in the city of Abington Mm -hmm. when the Civil War broke out. There was a group of 10,000 federal troops from General Stoneman, Gillum, and Burbridge that joined forces in Kentucky and began a march towards southwest Virginia. The people of Abington knew that the troops were coming, but depleted the manpower, they couldn't really do much about it, except just sit and wait and hope that they didn't show up. So the feds started burning the buildings once they got to town, and they they primarily focused on the buildings that were used for the Confederates for like storing supplies and housing housing the Confederate officials and stuff like that. When all was said and done, the railroad depot, two wagon shops, Hertz store, and the Washington County Jail were all destroyed. Now, Colonel Stoneman, who was in charge of this, he refused to set fire to any private developments. So that was good. Mm-hmm. Very but good. that's when James Wyatt arrived. Now, he used to live in Abington, but he got in some trouble with the law. He believed he was falsely accused, and he was pretty much made to leave town. He was with the Union Army now, and he decided that he was going to burn down the town by himself and get revenge on the town that unjustly forced him out. He starts setting several fires around town, and that's when the Confederate Army got wind of what was going on. Two brothers by the name of Samuel and John Finley from Mississippi, they set their sights on hunting Wyatt down. Wyatt was shot by Samuel and knocked off of his horse. Wyatt's terrified horse galloped off and ended up at Martha Washington College, which, by the way, during the Civil War time, just began, uh, became known as the Martha. Oh, that's the Martha? That's what everybody called The Martha. That's what everybody called it. The horse wandered around the campus for a couple of hours. Now, Wyatt was carried off into the home of John Floyd, where he eventually died. And Tracy, that is the legend of the riderless horse, which has been reportedly seen roaming the Martha Washington Inn on bright, moonlit nights for many years since that incident occurred. Wow. That'd be kind of cool to see that. Yeah, unless it wakes you up in the middle of the night. Oh, that's true. But you might be taking a midnight stroll in the moonlit night, and you'd be like, hey, there's a dang horse with nobody on it. Wonder whose horse that is. Wonder whose horse got out. And all that. Yeah, glad you've worked that out. (laughs) Back in the 1900s, when the end was a college, the kitchen is where the pub is today. Now, the pub is like a restaurant and a bar that's Mm -hmm. part of the inn. But that was where the kitchen was back in the day. So according to local tradition at the time, slaves were actually kept in that room. In fact, rumors say that bodies of slaves are actually buried in one of the walls there. Oh, my gosh. One day, some of the employees were cleaning the kitchen. And one of the men screamed and dropped a pile of pots and pans. He ran out the door, but then he later told some of his co-workers that he had seen the ghost of a former slave. And that's what freaked him out. Yeah. In 1937, Wiley Henry, he had a personal experience with another ghost. It was late one night. He was the um, uh, guard, security mm-hmm, guard. Mm-hmm. He was he was walking down the second floor hallway of the building, and he was doing his checks. And he had a time clock slung over one shoulder and was carrying a lantern on the other. Because this is the back in the days where you had to carry that punch clock when to make sure that you were at each station. You would punch it to show them that you were actually making your rounds and not just sit at a desk all night. 
Oh. So, but, but like most places now have clocks there, and you just carry something around, or they've got yeah. Like the, I worked a security job, heck, thirty years ago, and uh, probably close to thirty years ago, and and it was set up where we just had like a little scanner. So each one of the little places had a barcode, and you just scanned it, and then you downloaded it when you got back. So you mm-hmm. didn't have to do all that. But back in the day, oh, they yeah. had to carry a big ass time clock with them and punch every time. But anyway, so he's carrying this this time clock and carrying a lantern. While he's on his round, the lantern suddenly blows out. Then an apparition appeared. It looked like a, a ragged, muddy Confederate soldier, according to this gentleman. But he was horribly wounded. He was hobbling on a crutch, and half of his head had apparently been blown off by a cannonball. Oh, my gosh. That's awful. Henry ran for help. When he got back, there was a pile of fresh mud about where the sales office is today. Oh. But no sign of the gentleman. That poor guy. So I guess we need to talk about the most famous ghost, Beth, since we haven't talked about her backstory. After we talk about Beth, we're going to finish with a few unique stories, to say the least. So this story goes back to the college days, back during the Civil War. Remember, I told you it was being used as a hospital and a school at the same time. Now, several of the women at the school, they they chose to go home for Christmas break. But some of the women decided to stay during Christmas break and help out as nurses. And Beth was one of the young ladies who stayed mm-hmm. to help out nursing. Captain John Stover was a was a, a spy from the north. He was shot by the Confederacy and he was brought to the hospital. He was admitted to room four hundred three, and Beth was assigned as his nurse. For months, Beth cared for the man, and they fell in love with each other. Beth would sometimes sing to him, and sometimes she would play her violin for him. Unfortunately, his condition worsened. He became delirious and unable to speak coherent sentences. Beth never lost faith, and she continued to nurse him to the best of her abilities. In his last moment, he told Beth that he loved her. He gripped her hand and asked if she would play for him. Oh, my goodness. How sweet. Then he died. Beth picked up her violin and began to play a mournful song. After he died? Yes. But he can't hear her. Well, depends on if we're talking about ghosts. I, I would think that maybe you would think he could. Maybe he can. As she was playing, the Confederate captain came into the room. He said, I'm sorry, Beth, but we have to take him. Beth said, stop. He has been pardoned, sir, by an officer higher than even Robert E. Lee. Captain Stover is dead. Wow. And then she fainted in the captain's arms. Aww. So there's been several sightings of Beth. We told you a few of them at the very beginning of the paranormal part of the, of the episode. But she deserves a few more stories. So Pete Sheffy, he's been a doorman at the end for 32 years. Sheff, and by the way, just to show you how many people love this, 
Sheffy's been there 32 years. The guy Wiley Henry that we told you about mm-hmm. just before that, that mm-hmm. saw the wounded soldier, that was his grandfather. <gasps> Whoa! So it's like they've had years in this family of working at this hotel. But Sheffy tells about an encounter that he had. It was 8 o'clock one Sunday. It was in February. And by the way, according to almost everybody, most of the activity mm-hmm. happens in the winter months. No kidding. Something about the winter months, just everything ramps up. So almost everybody that I saw had experiences all mentioned it happens more in the winter than anything. But anyway, he was conducting a ghost tour. There was about 30 people on a tour. And he said the group went up the grand staircase to the second floor. They arrived at the door of the governor's suite. Sheffy said that it was really dark inside the suite because the lights weren't on. He opened the door and he flipped on the light. Now, when he did this, he looked across the room and he saw a figure standing in one of the other doorways Mm -hmm. because it was a suite, so they had separate rooms. He sees a figure standing in the doorway. He thought at first it was a guest, but then it immediately vanished. He knew instantly he had seen a ghost. He said it was a woman, tall, with her hair down to her shoulders. He said he was shaken. He decided to not enter the room, but he did continue on with the tour. An hour later, after the tour was over, he returned back to the governor's suite because he needed to turn the light off. He was Mm -hmm. so freaked out he forgot to turn the light off. (laughs) He opened the door. Of course, the lights were still on. And he saw the apparition again. This time, it was in the front room by the window. He slammed the door and ran for the security guard. By the time they got back, there was no ghost and the lights were off. There was another time that a security guard saw an apparition of a woman standing in the old dining hall. It was early one morning. The doors were usually locked uh, around 2 a.m. So the guard assumed that somebody had to have been locked in by mistake. Mm -hmm. But then the lady came towards him and passed straight through the doors. He followed the ghost and he saw it float up the grand staircase. It disappeared through the door of room 403, which was luckily unoccupied for the evening. Oh, yeah. That would have freaked somebody out for sure. The guard used his pass key. He opened the door. He walked in the room. He said the bed was messed up. The blinds started going up and down. And the lights were flickering on and off. Mm-hmm. Kate Trent. I thought you were going to do some, some unique stories now. Mm-hmm. So this one is kind of cool. Kate Trent, she was a housekeeper, and she worked in the pub area. She was bent over vacuuming, and she saw a white mist appear in front of her. It looked like a woman in white, and then it just disappeared. She's lucky she didn't get sucked up in the vacuum cleaner. (laughs) Yeah, like on Ghostbusters. (laughs) All right, so here's here's the cool ones. We mentioned earlier that Barter Theater is across the street, right? They were using some of the actors and stuff. We were yeah. using it for a while to stay there. There's a tunnel that ran underneath the hotel and straight to the theater. And it's been closed off for years now. But back in the day, the actors in the 30s and the 40s would use that to come back and forth from the theater. And they'd come, you know, to their house where they didn't have to be, mm-hmm. you know, bothered, I guess, by patrons that were watching the theater. The actors would sometimes report encounters of a malevolent spirit in the tunnel. It was never seen, 
but there were stories of an evil presence that was felt. It was believed to be a man who either died in the tunnel when there was a collapse in 1890, or a Confederate soldier who used the tunnel to smuggle out ammo from the basement of the inn during the Civil War. So there's that one. There's also a reappearing blood stain in the hospital. So the story on this was there was a young Confederate soldier that was assigned to carry some important papers to General Lee, okay? Mm-hmm. And this was these papers supposedly telling him about the positions of, of the Confederate Army and all that stuff. He loved a woman at the college, and he knew that this was going to be a dangerous mission. He may not make it back, so he decided to take the chance to go tell her goodbye before he left. He traveled through the cave system that's under the city, made his way to the college, and used a secret stairway to get into the college. As he was saying his goodbyes, he was captured by Union soldiers. He was then shot in front of his love where he fell and his blood stained the floor. Over the years, the blood stain continues to reappear. The floor has been refinished, but it kept occurring. So they replaced it with carpet. And the carpet then will develop holes in the spot where the blood stains is. That is crazy. I mean, hopefully he had a little time with her before they shot him. Very little. Well, this is this is the one that'll freak you out. Eva Yarber, she's a former night auditor at the inn. It was early morning. Her work was finished. She walked down to the lobby. She sat in front of one of the, in one of the plush chairs next to the roaring fireplace to read the newspaper. She remembers that it was George Washington's birthday. Eva was joined by a woman named Glenda, who she'd been training uh, just a little bit earlier. And Glenda was was off work as well, and she sat down and decided that she was going to nap a little bit, so she dozed off in her chair. Mm -hmm. Eva heard someone walking around the lobby. Then she heard a noise at the very top of the stairs. She said a smoky mist began uh, just kind of descending the staircase. When it reached the bottom of the stairs, it disappeared around the corner and into another room. Eva said that the figure reminded her of something she had seen before. The creature from the movie Predator. Ooh. Well, that's horrifying. I don't know if she means the actual creature with all the, like, the dreadlocks or, or whatever. Yeah. Deal, or if she's talking about how the fact that it was, like, when it showed it in its, like, invisible form that you could kind of... Oh, either way. But there's a that little thing. There's supposed to be, like, an invisible type monster out there that does that. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, the Hollow Man or something. But I know Derek from... Uh, Monsters Among Us talks about it a lot. That's oh, like yeah? one of his fascinations, but I can't remember what it is right off the bat. So Eva says, that happened four times. Each time she yelled to Glenda, but Glenda remained asleep, never even flinched. She stomped her feet. She said, that didn't help. Then Eva realized something. She wasn't making a sound. Oh, no. Nor could she move. At 5.45 a.m., whatever was holding her back, let go. Then she yelled at Glenda, and Glenda woke up immediately, and Glenda said that she hadn't heard anything before that. What? So it's kind of like a sleep paralysis type yeah. situation. But she swears she wouldn't sleep. I don't know. Well, that's... What well, the... What? But you say she don't remember any of it? 
Glenda didn't. She didn't hear any of it. But that happened four times or five times because oh. she said it happened well four or five times. That's crazy. All right, one more. This one's quick. Lisa Owens, she's the buyer for the gift shop. Now the gift shop stays open until ten o'clock most nights. This was a Sunday night, and she wanted to point out a few things. First of all, nobody had been in for a couple of hours. It's about nine thirty, and it was snowing. So mm-hmm. another another cold night. Yeah. It was snowing outside. Nobody been in for two hours. But she said in in the room, it stays hot all the time because she's there was all these display lights. Oh, yeah. And the heat from the heat. lights mm-hmm. always. So even in the dead of winter, it was warm in there. One of their biggest items that they sell that they have luck with is like music boxes. Mm-hmm. They have tons of them, all kinds of different kinds, all over the place. And you got to wind them up mm-hmm. to get them to play. She says she's in there, it's about 9.30, and all of a sudden, it just, the temperature drops immediately and it becomes freezing in there, which is never the case. Then she said two of the music boxes started playing at the exact same time that were sitting on the shelves. Keep in mind, nobody had been in there for two hours, so nobody had touched these things. But two of them, at the exact same time, started playing. Interesting. And she said that was all for her, and she locked up and left a half hour early. Well, hell, I would have left a lot earlier than that. I'm just saying, if you're do, if you're not doing any business and stuff, but yeah, but there's people inside the hotel, so it's not like you're just well, yeah, waiting on true. people to walk in off the street. There's that's people, very so true. So anybody in the hotel, yeah, that would have been uh, I would have been scared about that. So anyway, that's the story of the George Washington Inn. Dang, I think or I'm Martha like, Washington, I should yeah, say. Yeah, George ain't got nothing to do with it. Yeah. Don't be giving him no credit. Him and his crazy hair. <laughs> <laughs> they all had crazy hair back then. I know. Wow, man, that place has really seen some stuff. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty cool story. Yeah, definitely. So, all right, let's take a really quick break, and then uh, we'll be back to tell you about some shows. Uh, i got to correct something on the cruise information that I might have misled somebody on. Uh-oh. And then uh, we'll listen to the interview with Harold Schechter. All right, I'm not going to waste a lot of time on show stuff Everything's at hillbillyhorrorstories.com. We have a special page for all the live events. I do want to mention that uh, we've already sold eight of the 26 tickets for the uh, St. Augustine Lighthouse Paranormal Investigation. $45, so there's only like 18 left Mm -hmm. if you're planning on coming and want to do that. Or if you live in the area and you're not even going to come to the live show and you want to do it. Heck yeah, yeah, man. Come do that. It's going to be from 11 to 1 on uh, Friday, was that the 17th of mm-hmm. September? And it's going to be all to ourselves, 30 of us. Fun. It'll be cool. I'll be tired as a mug, but it'll be fun. It will be. But um, I've got a link on our website. It actually, Diane from History Goes Bump is taking care of, but I've got a link on our website. So just go to that and you can. it'll take you right where you need to go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the other live shows are on there. And uh, so just do that. Uh, I'm going to look. Tracy, do the Patreon and the iTunes, and then I'll tell you where I kind of might have uh, misinformed on the cruise a little bit. <laughs> All right. This week for iTunes, we have BG Regi, Mojo Lobster, Sean Mako, and Neezer413. Thank you guys for your awesome reviews. They were wonderful. We appreciate y'all so much. And then our Patreon this week is Squints. Thank you, honey, for your support. We appreciate you guys um, doing that and to take your time out to leave us a review. It means the world to us. This is kind of a shout out to, I, I thought about this is the podcast that I listen to a lot that I really like. It's an individual over in Great Britain, but it's Bizarre Podcast. 
I think you guys will like it. They're, he's really great on his research, and I've been talking to him. We're going to get him on the show. He's uh, It's funny because he's actually got a little bit of stage fright when it comes to like doing interviews and stuff. No. And uh, but I think he's going to do it. I think I got him talked to him oh, doing good. it. But it's became one of my fam- favorite uh, podcasts to go to. And a matter of fact, there's like 45 episodes or so, and I think I've already breezed through almost every one of them in like two weeks. Oh, nice. So, yeah, it's yeah been a, give it's, him a listen. Yeah, it's been a while since I've found one that I like that much to where mm-hmm. I just started binging on. So, oh, great. All right, Cruz. First of all, you guys are amazing. Oh my gosh, are you not amazing? <laughs> you guys are amazing. We are. Close to 50 people have booked already the first oh week that gosh. was available. Oh, my gosh. How exciting. Man, we are going to party it up on this yeah. biatch. It's going to be fun. And if you are, um, there's going to be a meet and greet on, on the thing. So if you're, if you're coming anyway and you're a paranormal podcaster, true crime podcaster, or a paranormal author, um, I can get you set up for the meet and greet where basically it's going to be like a little mini convention where we set up for a couple hours in this big room and everybody I have their own little section of table. And I mean, if you want to hand out some stuff to, to advertise your show or just, you know, get a chance to meet people and, and talk to people uh, and want to be involved in that, send me a message and I'll just get you set up. It won't cost you anything, if you're, especially if you're already going. So we're going to have a, a lot of paranormal and true crime folks on the cruise. So I figured we might as well let everybody get a chance to kind of promote themselves. All right, here's where I kind of screwed up. And it's just because it wasn't on purpose. It's just I didn't understand until after I'd already said it and I was corrected. First of all, for people who are booking the rooms, I said, and this is the part that's wrong, it costs the same whether it's one person or four people. That's not actually the case. If you're a single person and you book the room, it will cost you twice as much. That part is correct. But each person that comes in your room, if you have, that's what she said. If you have oh my God. four people in a room, it is, every all four people have to pay. Now, the third and the fourth people are discounted, but because they're still eating food, uh, over the course of the cruise and all that's included in drinks and all that stuff, there is a cost, but it is a discounted cost. So I, I screwed up when I said that it was the same price, whether it was four people or uh, two people or one person. I screwed up, and I just wanted to apologize about that. Now, apparently, the, the they're booking the rooms, and it's not really been an issue so far, um, but I just wanted to make sure that anybody listening that, that did hear that, that I wanted to correct that. Cause I don't want anybody to think we're misleading them because that's not the case. And I don't want people to have surprises. And when they call and find out that it's not going to be at the cost. Now on a positive side, there are other upgraded rooms available. We've had people asking and like now there's junior suites that because we had done such a good job selling all of our rooms, they've opened up some junior suites to us. It's a couple hundred dollars more for the suite. But it's a lot bigger, bigger bathroom and all that. And if you go to hillbillyhorrorstories.com to the cruise page, I've actually put video from all the, from all the rooms so you can actually see what the rooms are like. And then you can also see where we're going because I've got some video of the uh, the, the islands and uh, the perfect day on Cocoa Beach that we're going to, or Cocoa Cave, I should say. And... You can, can kind of get a feel of what the, the ship is. And there's also a video on there that's like 15 minutes long that somebody walks you through every 
level of the ship, all, every floor, so you can see all the improvements that were done. It's, this ship just had a $100 million improvements done last year. Cruise and got shut down from COVID. <laughs> so it's pretty much still brand, brand new. new. It's brand yeah. spanking new and hadn't done much this year. So anyways, I bored you enough with that. Thank you so much for all you do. You guys never cease to amaze us. And uh, now let's listen to Harold Schechter. This interview is a tearjerker, so just giving you the heads up. Hey, guys, I'm excited because I have a, a special guest on today. I've got Amazon Charts bestselling author. He's a true crime author by the name of uh, Harold Schechter. Harold, you got so many books out, buddy. I don't even know if we can get to every one of them. You're, it's amazing, but we'll touch on Fatal's Out, Fiend, Deviant, Today, though, we are going to focus on Maniac. So, uh, Harold, thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate your asking me on. So let me ask you this. We, you know, we just did an episode on here probably two months ago about the Cokesville miracle, uh, which happened in 1986 in Wyoming. Now, that situation obviously uh, was gained national prominence because of the positive ending that it had 150 some odd people all in one room a couple come in they take the school hostage they have a bomb the bomb goes off but luckily nobody was injured or i should say nobody was killed or injured Mm -hmm. seriously except for the couple that brought the bomb in yeah now your newest book maniac it talks about a situation back in 1927 with the bath school disaster that was the exact opposite of this. It did not have the positive ending that this one had. So tell me a little bit about the person of interest in this story, Andrew Kehoe. Uh, well, um, Bath, Michigan, where this tragedy took place, is a small farming community located not far from Lansing. Uh, And uh, in May 1927, one of the uh, residents of the community, respected member of the community who served in different town offices and was a member of the school board, um, his life uh, began to come undone and he underwent this severe mental unraveling, uh, developed extreme paranoia and uh, uh, this uh, burning savage hatred against his fellow townspeople uh, who he blamed for his troubles, um, some of them financial. Uh, And he decided in his growing madness that he was going to take this terrible revenge on the community by blowing up uh, their handsome new consolidated school. Back in those days, there was a movement in rural areas of the country to do away with the old one-room schoolhouse system and build these modern, what they call consolidated schools, which would teach children from elementary through high school And the people of Bath had just constructed one of these schools, uh, and it was the pride of the community. Um, And Kehoe, who had 24-7 access to the school because he was a school board, he was the treasurer of the school board, spent weeks in the spring of 1927 sneaking into the school at night and rigging the basement with several hundred pounds 
of World War I surplus explosives, which at the time uh, were being sold by the government to farmers in the form of uh, a low-grade explosive called pyrotol, uh, so that they could use it to clear their fields of tree stumps and boulders. Uh, and Kehoe had acquired, I think, about 500 pounds of this stuff. So uh, he, he rigged the basement with it, and he made these uh, simple timers and set them to go off on the last day of school, which was May 18th, 1927. And around nine o'clock that morning, uh, the explosive detonated. I mean, if there was one, you know, positive thing, it's that a lot of the explosives failed to go off uh, because of faulty wiring. If it had, he would have destroyed the entire school and basically wiped out an entire generation of school children in that community. Um, but he did manage to destroy one entire wing of the school and 38 school children of different ages died in the explosion along with several school teachers. Then Kehoe loaded up his Ford pickup truck with more explosives and shrapnel, drove it down to what remained of the school, called a few what we would now call first responders over and detonated his truck and killed them and himself. So the Bath school disaster of 1927 was the deadliest school massacre in US history. It was the worst case of domestic terrorism uh, before uh, Timothy McVeigh blew up the federal building in Oklahoma City. And it was the first uh, and really the only suicide car bombing uh, in our history all rolled into one. I'm kind of discounting in a way the recent Nashville car, a suicide I... car bombing because you know it didn't claim any victims except you know, the perpetrator. So, so is this, you know, I, I, all through the 20th century, there are all these quote unquote crimes of the century, Leopold and Loeb and the Lindbergh baby kidnapping all the way up to OJ. Um, but by the time I finished my book, I had come to believe that the Bath school disaster was the single worst American crime of the 20th century. Uh, and what's fascinating, of course, is that hardly anybody's heard of it. Well, and part of that, obviously, is because, you know, shortly after this happened, you know, before anybody could really focus on it and dig deep, you had Lindbergh making his transatlantic flight, and that pretty much knocked everything else off of the newspapers and took front stage. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I think three days after uh, Kehoe destroyed the, the school, um, yeah, Lindbergh made his flight, which was as momentous at the time as the moon landing four decades later. You know, uh, the day after the Bath School disaster, it was the lead story on the front page of the New York Times. A Couple of days later, the first five pages of the New York Times were entirely devoted to Lindbergh and his flight. Uh, and you, you know, there was no mention at all of the Bath School disaster. Wrong with uh, Harold Schechter, uh, the book, as you can see here, it's called Maniac. It is a fantastic read. I got through this in about three days, and anybody who listens to my show knows that I'm not much of a reader. Uh, not long stories. Usually I like short stories. I have a very short attention span, but this was a very easy book to get through. I want to recommend to everybody to pick this one up. So let's talk a little bit about 
the mental stability of, of Andrew Kehoe, what do you think was going on with him from a psychological standpoint? Well, you know, Kehoe fits the classic profile of the mass murderer. Uh, he suffered from what psychologists call malignant narcissism. You know, everything was about him. And when uh, his world started to go wrong, um, you know, he, he, and he decided to end it, uh, he decided to end as much of the rest of the world as he possibly could. Um, he was what criminologists have come to call an injustice collector. You know, these are people, again, whose lives have gone precipitously downhill, come totally unraveled. You know, they feel they've reached the end of things. Uh, and, you know, they brood over all of these slights and insults and injustices that they feel other people have inflicted on them and that have led to their own failures, which they do not hold themselves responsible for. And in the end, they decide, you know, they're going to end their lives, but commit these apocalyptic acts of violence uh, that will take as many other people down with them as possible. Uh, primarily, uh, although not always, the people that they hold again, responsible for, you know, for the, the terrible way their lives have uh, come undone. Harold, you've written several books with a primary focus on serial killers. Mm -hmm. What do you see in through all of your research that connect all of these people? What is the, the main thing? Is it narcissism? Is it uh, mental illness? What do you think connects all of these one recurring factor at a time that you see? Well, certainly mental illness, but, you know, the psychology of serial murderers is very different from that of mass murderers. You know, serial killers are basically extreme sexual sadists who derive uh, this perverted pleasure from torturing and killing helpless victims. So that's an act that, uh, again, they, they get, you know, they get ecstatic pleasure from. Uh, and they want to keep doing it for as long as they possibly can. Whereas uh, mass murder in general tends to be a, a suicidal act. Again, these, pe these are people who are going to destroy themselves and, and, and take down as many other people with them as they possibly can. You know, go out with a bang, uh, either commit suicide themselves the way uh, Kehoe did, or sometimes, you know, what they call suicide by cop. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, other and, and their their mental aberrations are, are I mean they both suffer from extreme psychopathologies you know but they're very very different phenomena what is it about let's say focus on serial killers that piqued your interest to where you're so fascinated with it to do all this research and want to devote so much time to writing books on the subject um, yeah, well, I come to, I come to uh, the writing of um, true crime from a kind of unusual path, uh, because for 42 years until my recent retirement, my day job was a, a professor of American literature, um, and I specialized in uh, 19th century Gothic writers like Poe and Hawthorne and Melville. And, and I came to that because um, I think, and looking back over my life and career, you know, I'm a baby boomer. Um, of an advanced age now. And when I grew up in the 50s, 
you know, talk, you know, people tend to romanticize the past, but you know, the 1950s, the culture was steeped in all kinds of horror stuff. Uh, you know, I grew up watching all these creature features on TV and spending my Saturdays going to these matinees of grade B or grade C horror movies and, you know, the EC horror comics. So I've always been fascinated by horror. Uh, and as I grew older and, and began to study literature, I became interested in why people need stories of horror, you know, why people need stories about monsters. And at some point, this is going back about 30 years or so, I was actually researching a book on the movies and, and researching the chapter on horror films. And I discovered what was unknown to me at the time that both Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, which are my two favorite horror movies, had both been inspired by the same real life case, that of the Wisconsin necrophile, Ed Gein. Um, and, uh, you know, that was very fascinating to me. And I began to look into that case and research the case and, you know, went to Plainfield and so on and so forth. And anyway, that became the basis of my first book. And actually, uh, I didn't even think I was writing true crime. I, I thought immodestly that I was inventing a new literary genre <laughs> because I thought of it as true horror. You know, I thought that I was writing these books about these real life monsters. Uh, first, there was Ed Gein. <laughs> then I wrote a book about the cannibal necrophile, Albert Fish, um, who uh, I learned about when I was researching the Gein book, I was in touch with Robert Block, who wrote the novel Psycho that the movie was based on. Mm. And, uh, you know, I said to Block, why, why do you think people are so interested in Ed Gein? Well, sorry, lost there. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, why are people so interested in Ed Gein? He said, well, they've forgotten about Albert Fish. So I uh, started researching that. That became my second book. Anyway, one thing led to another. And before I knew it, I had become a historian of American true crime, which was not my original career goal. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't think your, uh, your student counselor back when you was probably in high school would have thought that would have been the best <laughs> choice. To... <laughs> yeah. Well, let's... I know we're talking primarily about the book Maniac, which is which is out now uh, about the 1927 Bath School disaster. But you brought up Albert Fish, and Albert Fish is actually somebody that I've been fascinated with over the years. I, I don't know, in in my personal opinion, if there has ever been a, uh, we'll say, a person of true crime interest, a serial killer, however you want to term him. I personally don't think that there's been anybody that has been as deranged as what he is. And, and I just go back to, you know, to, to kill and cannibalize people, children, and then to go to a parent of, of one of those children and blatantly describe everything that you did to them. That's a, 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 a level that I think that even most people of that mental illness don't ever get to. Uh, yes. It was just something about seeing that pain and knowing, because he didn't even get to experience the look on their face. He just, just the thought of knowing that he caused that pain by telling mm -hmm. them was all it took for him to get off on it. Oh, absolutely. Well, 
it's why my book is called Deranged and uh, why the subtitle is uh, uh, The Shocking True Story of America's Most Fiendish Killer. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, you know, I think, uh, I think Fish is far and away the most heinous uh, murderer in our history. You know, I think people, even if you're anti-capital punishment, I think, you know, people who read my book would come away, you know, really glad that he got the chair. Um, yeah, I mean, Fish was uh, a lifelong predator on children uh, and he derived his deepest pleasures from inflicting uh, these unspeakable tortures on them. He, he also was a, a, a masochist of a kind that no psychiatrist had ever witnessed before. Um, you know, when he was finally captured and analyzed by these psychiatrists, he, he, was, per, he was performing perversions, again, mm -hmm. that literally had never been heard of before. You know, he, one thing that's always stuck with me, so to speak, <laughs> you know, um, you know, one thing he'd like to do, he would, he would take a, a long stemmed rose and uh, stick it up his urethra, Ugh. you know, thorns and all, and then parade around in front of a mirror and then rip, rip the stem out and then eat the rose. Um, but, you know, so, yeah, I mean, as he said, inflicting pain, suffering pain, you know, those were his only sources of sexual pleasure. And he committed these hideous, hideous, again, atrocities on young children. I mean, that, that was, of all my books, that was the hardest one for me to write because, um, you know, I had a lot of, uh, a lot of material, firsthand material. I had all these letters, you know, not only the letter that you referred to, which was the one that he wrote to the mother of his final victim, uh, just out of the blue, really, um, describing in detail what he had done to her. Uh, but yet there are all these other letters that he, he wrote to people describing hideous things. Yeah, it's, like you said, uh, deranged is definitely uh, the right term to use for somebody like that. Mm -hmm. So Harold, we're running short on time. I want to make sure I get you out. I know you got several other interviews and I appreciate every second you've been able to give us. Tell everybody how they can find your newest book, Maniac, along with all of your other books. Well, um, especially in these pandemic times when I don't know how many bookstores are actually open. Yeah, Amazon uh, is probably the best bet. Uh, the book was published yesterday, so it is readily available online. Awesome. Harold, thank you so much. I can't can't wait to start diving now that I've got my, my sights on this particular book and read that. I can't wait to start looking at the whole back catalog. And uh, you've got plenty out there for me to read. I appreciate it. Thank you for what you do. Uh, I appreciate your having me on the show. Not a problem. Thank you so much. So how about that for a heart-wrenching story? Yeah. So much loss and just... It's heartbreaking. So. I don't even know what to say. I want to thank Harold for coming on. Like yeah, I said, thank and, you, and sending us a copy of the book. It was awesome. So, Yeah, thank you for doing that. We appreciate y'all so much. All right, guys, that wraps it up. Thank you for everything you do. Uh, just a reminder that uh, we have Patreon that you can go and sign up for and get a bunch of bonuses. We're over 1,000 bonus episodes on there now. Most of them are shorts, but mm -hmm. um, some of them are full, you know, about 200 full-length ones, I guess, now. Yeah. Or, well, close. Yeah. Oh, we love you guys so much and 
We are counting down the days to our live shows, and we can't wait to see you all. Yep, don't forget, St. Augustine, Memphis, Galveston, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dallas. Nice. And Bobby Mackey's. All of those are up on the website. Go check them out and at least find out some details. Yeah, we hope you all have a blessed week, and take care.